Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come together and to understand this theme. And for many of us, uh, some of these things might be review, but for others of us, Lord, we need our faith to be awakened. We ask your special blessing to be with us now, that you would draw us close to you and close to each other. And Lord, draw us near to the heart of God and to your heart, Lord. And we want to be connected with heaven. We want to understand these things. More importantly, Lord, we want to experience them. So help us, Lord, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's take a look first at Revelation chapter 14. And if I were to ask you, what is the core of Revelation chapter 14, what would you say? Three angels' messages. If I were to say, what's the core of the three angels' messages, what would you say? Worship. Worship. Good. What else? Judgment. What else? Huh? Giving glory to God. If I were to ask somebody else? To go? To preach the message? Absolutely. Somebody else was saying something? Seventh-day Sabbath. All right. All these are great answers. Okay. Well, if I, if I were to ask you, what is the purpose of the three angels' messages, what would you say? Reverence? Preparation? Wake up God's people? Bring in the second coming? What God is going to save? All these answers are correct. And what is the purpose of the message? What, okay, somebody said preparation, which, I, which that's close to what I was looking for. All these answers are correct. But what is the preparation that God wants us to experience in anticipation of the second coming of Jesus? What is the preparation? What is that preparation actually? Yeah, get ready for Jesus, but what does that actually mean? What does it actually look like? Trust. Trust. What's going to happen in the lives of God's people before Jesus comes? Revival. But what does revival lead to? Huh? Say again? Torment? All right. Sanctification. So the ultimate goal of the three angels' message is to fit a people to be prepared for Jesus' coming. But when we say to fit a people for Jesus' coming, what is that fitting? Actually, we're not just trying to get into heaven, but we want to fit into heaven, right? So the fitting is that God's people will appear and look like who? Jesus. In character, yes? So, so, so the goal of the three angels' message is to cause God's people to turn to Him with all their hearts so that He can do a work within them that they cannot do for themselves. Yes or no? Now look there in Revelation 14. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12, because verse 12 is really the climax, it is really the, 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 the wholeness of this message. Okay? Revelation 14, 12 says, Here is the patience of the what? Saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Having the faith of Jesus, I'm sorry, let me just back up. Keeping the commandments of God 
can never go in a sentence when it gives when it's referring to God's people without the second half of that phrase and the what the faith of Jesus. So if you notice there, and I love I love bringing this out. If you notice there, it doesn't just say that they will have faith in Jesus, does it? It's amazing how important a two-letter word is, isn't it? In and of. Now, before you stone me, I'm not saying we shouldn't have faith in Jesus, okay? But having faith... Now, now, now don't, don't miss what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Having faith in Jesus is crucial. It's important. It's, it's our life, Okay? But for the people who will stand on the earth before Jesus comes, having faith in Jesus, might I say, is not enough. Now that sounds heretical. But it's not. Because the fullness of having faith in Jesus leads to what? What, what, is, what is the faith? What, as I put my faith in Jesus day by day, it matures, it grows, it deepens to what? The faith of Jesus. Now what exactly does the faith of Jesus mean? It's simply this. When Jesus came to earth as a man, the faith that Jesus had the faith, that, the faith that Jesus lived, the faith that Jesus demonstrated while He was on this earth is the same faith that God's people will have at the end of time before Jesus returns to the earth. Does that make sense? Now, if, you ask, if I ask you this question, is faith in Jesus more or less than the faith of Jesus? Huh? Say... It's less, right? So faith in Jesus must grow into and must mature into the faith of Jesus. That makes sense. Now that does not in any way or in any shape or form or fashion take away from faith in Jesus. Are you with me? It doesn't take away from it. But that faith in Jesus must grow to the faith of Jesus. And that is the purpose of the three angels' message. That is the goal that God has for each one of us is that our faith will deepen and mature until we have the faith that Jesus had when He walked on this earth. How many can say amen? Aren't you thankful for that today? And so God wants us to have that faith. And, and the fact that Jesus came to this earth and walked as a man, and he, he completely emptied Himself of self, and He completely relied upon His Father for everything, is the experience that He wants us to have. And all the things that God did for Jesus on the earth, He would do for us. You believe that? All the things that God did for the apostles in the book of Acts, He would do for us. Amen? And the issue is faith. And so, the third angel's message is really about faith. It's about trust. It's about a faith that needs to deepen and mature until we reach the place where we have the faith of Jesus. How many can say amen? amen? How many of you think that that's something you want to desire? Amen. 
and your hive. Now what it doesn't mean is that we are called to tighten our belts and, and, and I don't misunderstand when I say this, but eat less cheese and, and less sugar and all those things. All those things have their place. Okay, All those things strengthen us in some way in, in, in living out God's ideal. But what we're talking about here is not something that we can obtain ourselves. It is something that only He can do in a surrendered heart. That's to Him. Okay? Does that make sense? Alright, so Revelation chapter 3. Flip over with me there. Because we're already out of time. <laughs> like what I want to share with you, I don't think I'll make it all today. But we're okay. Revelation chapter 3 and verse uh, 14 through 19 says, To the church, angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, Jesus speaking here, I know your wants. I know your works, that you are neither hot or cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have, become, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and do what? Repent. Repent. This message that Jesus gives to the Laodicean church in the last days, which by the way is who? More specifically, you and me, right? We can say us, and it can be an acronym for everyone else but me, right? That's often a common case, yeah? It's just like, you know, when, uh, when people talk about marital problems, they say, yeah, my marriage has a lot of problems. I'm looking at it right here, right? And I'm pointing to my spouse. So it's easy to, to point to everybody else. But God is speaking to us specifically. And the problem that our church has today as we have not had this deeper experience of conversion that Jesus is talking about. And the bigger problem is that we don't know that we need it. We talk about the fact that we need it, but we think in our hearts, oh, I'm okay and everyone else needs it, but I'm good. And, and when everybody thinks that, everybody has the same problem, right? And so Jesus gives us the formula for correcting that problem. Verse 18 I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. What is that? What is the gold refined in the fire? It's faith, right? And what kind of faith are we looking for? The faith of Jesus, right? And then he says that you may be rich and white garments that you may be what? Clothes. So what are the white garments or the white garment? The righteousness of of Christ, covering our own unrighteousness, right? Or replacing it, rather. That you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eye salve, your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. What is the eye salve? It's the Holy Spirit, right? So Jesus here is telling us that we need three things. What do we need? The faith of Jesus. We need the righteousness of Jesus. And we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. How many think that we need those things today? Yes? Those are the three things that we need. And He rebukes us. Why? Because He, because he loves us. How many of you are thankful that Jesus loves you today? 
And if Jesus didn't love you, he wouldn't rebuke you. When you see a parent with two children and one is super spoiled rotten because the parent only indulges and never disciplines, or you see a child who is well-disciplined with love, which one would you say, which parent loves their child more? Every time I have to discipline my children, I remember that what's going to come out of it is better than what's going to happen if I let it go. And that gives me the motivation to follow through that discipline because there's no fun spanking my little sweet little girl, three years old, right? No fun at all. Don't enjoy it. But I'm reminded that the damage is greater if I don't, and I do not love her if I do not correct her, right? All right, so let's go on. Ellen White said in 1887, Review and Herald, there is too much what? Formality in the church. Now, when she says formality, what she does not mean is structure and order. Are you with me? We need structure and order. Paul is very clear about this in the book of Corinthians. Um, he says God is not a God of confusion or disorder, but a God of order, right? So she's not talking about we just need this freelance worship service. That's not what she's talking about. But she's talking about formality in the sense of, of um, legalism and, and people who are looking to themselves rather than to Christ. That's what she's talking about. Anytime our eyes are taken off Christ and we're looking at ourselves, formalism creeps in, right? So she says, souls are perishing for light and for knowledge. We should be so connected with the source of light that we can be channels of light to the world. The Lord Jesus on the Mount of Olives plainly stated that because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall go, grow cold. He speaks of a high class who have fallen from a high state of spirituality. Think about your own life today. Maybe this fits you. Maybe you were close to the Lord, but something else creeped in that seemed to be better. Not conscientiously, but it just had enough draw to draw you away from what you know to be true. And before you know it, you're off doing this other thing, and it's not the best thing for you. He speaks of a class who have fallen from a high state of spirituality. Let, su let such utterances as these come home with solemn, searching power to our hearts. What ought we be doing all the time? Searching our what? Searching our own hearts. Where, there, where is the fervor, the devotion to God that corresponds to the greatness of the truth which we claim to believe? Friends, if we understood our faith like we should, if we understood what Christ has done for us as we should, if we understood what God has for us as we should, we would be more excited than we've ever been. Things that are outside of God's ideal for us would have absolutely no sway and, and, and no draw to us. Not because we're Christians and we don't do those things, not because of that, but because we would say, what God has given me is so sweet, there is nothing else sweeter in the world. If the love of Jesus, you know, in 1 John when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world, right? And, and many times in our, in our minds, we have this picture that 
What that means is we have to like build our wall up, build our castle around ourselves. And even though we'd really like to be outside the castle doing all those things that we have to say, because I'm a Christian, I can't do it. So stay back. No, 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 no. The reality is that when you taste the things of Jesus and when you experience his intimacy and his love and his power and his, the beauty of his character, those things may still, I mean, don't, don't misunderstand, they may still have a draw to me, okay, because of the flesh. But what I've tasted here is sweeter, and I make a conscientious decision that this is better than that. Even though that will give me pleasure, this gives me greater pleasure. It may not be as highly stimulating as that. I mean, it is stimulating, but you understand the point. I mean, that gives a quick high rush to the top. Jesus tends to take us like this. You understand? So we need to understand and go back to our first love. What do you say? Our first love. Amen? The love of the world, the love of some darling sin has weaned the, the heart from the love of prayer and meditation on sacred things. A, form, a formal round of religious services is kept up, but where is the love of Jesus? Spirituality is dying. Is this, leth, is this lethargy, this mournful deterioration to be perpetuated? Is the lamp of truth to flicker and go out in darkness because it is not replenished by the oil of grace? Does that sound like the condition of our churches today? What do you think? And it's easy to say, yeah, that's the condition of our churches, but what about the condition of our own hearts and our own lives? Is it that, yes or no? And Satan has so much stuff to lay in front of us that we can easily say, aha, uh-huh, that's true, and just move on to the next thing that he has in line for us. Because there's so much of it. Are you with me? But what is the remedy? I forgot to tell you, though, I have a lot of stuff to read to you. Is that okay? It's not the best in hot weather, but you'll want to be here, so you're ready for it. All right. A revival of true godliness. Of true what? Godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs. How many of you agree with that today? How many of you came to camp meeting because you need a revival? Because you want a revival. You want a revival. To seek this should be our first work. How often should we seek for it? All the time. Amen? There must be earnest effort to obtain the blessing of the Lord, not because God is not willing, but because we are unprepared to receive it. Our Heavenly Father is more willing to give His Holy Spirit to them that ask Him than our earthly parents' good gifts to their children. God is willing to give us the Holy Spirit to the measure of which we are willing to seek it. Think about that for just a minute. To the level that we're willing to seek the Holy Spirit, God is willing to give it. So if you're not receiving much of the Holy Spirit, why is that the case? Because God is withholding from you? No, because why? Because we're not asking for it, right? Sometimes we're afraid to ask for the Holy Spirit because we're afraid of what God will do in our lives once He gives it to us, aren't we? So what is righteousness by faith exactly? I mentioned this, that I didn't know what it was. But notice this, A.G. Daniels Daniels writes, the application of this message extends till when? 
the close of time. How relative is that to us today? Relevant, I should say. Is that relevant to us now? Are we at the close of time yet? I mean, we're there, but we're not fully there. So let's define righteousness. Well, the Bible defines righteousness as holiness, godliness, which is the exact opposite of what? Sin. 1 Corinthians 15.34, awake to what? Righteousness and do what? Sin not. So the Bible is very clear that righteousness is the opposite of sin, sin being unrighteousness. The two cannot go together. They are complete exact opposites, oil and water, if you will. Ephesians 5.9, the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness and righteousness and what? So righteousness is also goodness and it is truth, right? And all unrighteousness, the Bible says, is sin, 1 John 5.17. E.J. Wagner mentions this. He says the righteousness of God is an expression of His character as set forth in the what? Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments, very clearly, they declare the righteousness of who? Of God. What we're going to see is that the, the Ten Commandments cannot give righteousness to us. It can only do what? Declare it. Now, I'm going to talk more about that in just a minute. All right, let's keep going. Steps of Christ, page 61. Righteousness is defined by the ten precepts given by the Lord on Mount Sinai. And so, again, there's another example of the Ten Commandments. So God's law is righteous because He Himself is what? Righteous. And His commandments are simply an expression of His moral nature. It is a definition of who He is. This is a bit of review for most of us. But I want you to notice this. <clears throat> this, is very, um, this is very powerful. Let me just make sure I'm in the right spot. Yeah, okay. I want you to notice the depth of God's law here. Okay? Watch this. This is very powerful. 1888 materials. God's law reaches to the internal as well as to the external actions of men. We as humans tend to focus on the what? <coughs> on the external, don't we? And we focus on the behavior. But God sees the core of what causes the behavior. Now you're reading instead of listening, so I'm just going to read again. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents and purposes of the soul. A man may be guilty of sins that God alone knows. You might be perfectly righteous in the eyes of every human being on earth, but God knows what others do not know, doesn't He? Now, I'm not saying that to, to frighten us, but we need to understand the, the seriousness and the depth of it, yeah? God's law is indeed a searcher of hearts. There are dark passions of jealousy and revenge and hatred, lust and wild ambition that are covered from human observation, but the great I Am knows them all. Sins have been contemplated and not yet carried out for want of opportunity. God's law makes a record of all these. These hidden away secret sins form what? Character. Now what I'm not trying to do is say, God is watching over your shoulder to mark down every bad thing that you do. That's not my point. But we need to understand the depth of which the law of God impacts our lives. Okay, We need to understand that. So it reflects what's in the human heart. Now watch this from 
book Patriots and Prophets. This is, this, when I first read this, I was just like, whoa, this is intense. False speaking. So it's talking about the commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, right? False speaking in any matter, every attempt or purpose to deceive our neighbor here is included. An intention to deceive is what constitutes falsehood. Now watch this. By a glance of the eye, a motion of the hand, an expression of the countenance, a falsehood may be told as effectually as by words. Think about that. So like just, you know, now not that, that that would be a thing, but if I'm doing it in the sense of misleading, then it counts. So when Jesus came and He sat on the Mount of Olives and He said, you've heard it said, you should not commit murder, but I say to you, if you commit if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder already. What, what the Jews had done is formed this outward, care, this outward framework of the commandments. They said, as long as you don't do this outwardly, or as long as you're not caught, in a sense even, then it's okay. And I think as Adventists in this day and age, we have really focused so much on the external that the external actions of others, that we're not always looking at the internal thoughts of our own hearts. Does that make sense? And we have, we've, kind of, we've kind of diluted the law of God and the nature of it and the purpose of it, similar to what they did then. Are you with me? Now watch this. Here we go. Um, all intentional overstatement, every hint or insinuation calculated to convey an erroneous or exaggerated impression, even the statement of facts in such a manner as to mislead, is falsehood. This precept forbids every effort to injure our neighbor's reputation by misrepresentation or evil surmising, by slander or talebearing, even the intentional suppression of truth by which injury may result to others is a violation of the ninth commandment. So just taking that one commandment and breaking it down, God says this is the reality of it. Now here's what I love about this. Because what I love about the Ten Commandments is that the Ten Commandments are really ten promises. Did you know that? Because when God says, you shall put no other gods before me, what he's saying is, I want you to not put anything else in front of me in your life. A, because I'll always be the very best for you. But B, because God says, I never will put anything in front of you, even my own life. God says, I don't want you to tell a lie because I'll never tell you a lie. God says, I don't want you to commit adultery because I'll always be faithful to you. Right? Make sense? So every commandment is really a promise when you look at it around. And God's saying, I'll never ask you to do anything that I'm not already doing for you. Isn't that a beautiful picture? See? And so the reality is, is that when we look at this thing, we think to ourselves, wow, like that's really intense. Like that's, that's a lot. I mean, I, I didn't think... Doing this was a big deal. You know what I mean? Like, 
gesturing with my hand or whatever to mislead somebody, even in a joking way. But God says, look, I'm never going to do that to you. You can be sure that everything I tell you, everything I show you, Every thought, every look, every intention of my heart is always to reveal to you the truth and to lead you further in the truth. How many of you find that greatly comforting and assuring? Amen? And so that's why God is saying, look, that's the greatest love you can display to a person is that. And God says, that's what I always want to do for you but I want that to be so a part of who you are that that's what you do for everyone else. Your parents, your friends, whoever. Amen? How do you find that to be so powerful? That God wants to duplicate that in our lives. So, who gave the law? Who gave it? God gave it, right? What is the purpose of the law? Let's go to Romans chapter 7. Turn with me there, Romans chapter 7. And we're going to read some of these things. Again, I said a review. Well, we'll get in some new stuff as we go along and later this week for sure. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through 14. We're laying a foundation here today. Um, would somebody with a nice, loud voice... Well, I'll read it. I'll just do that because it's in the recording. They're recording this thing. Romans 7, 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Why does he say, apart from the law, sin was dead? Yeah, because he didn't know anything about it. He just thought, whatever I want to do is fine, right? And when he said, when there was something higher than myself that pointed out that what I was doing was wrong, it created death in me, right? Because I was now under um, the law. I was alive once without the law. And that's what he's saying there. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I what? And I died. In other words, I recognized that when God revealed to me that this thing was not correct, it created a death sentence in me because I knew now that what I had done was wrong and the wages of sin is death. And the commandment, which was to bring what? Life, I found to bring death. And so here's the thing, friends. We, because we know, the, we know this too well, that the wages of sin is death and all have sinned, falling short of the glory of God, and sin is the transgression of the law, even sometimes we ourselves make this assumption that the law somehow brings death to us. You know what I'm saying? Like it's that thing that's like, it's good, but it's bad. You know what I mean? And it's scary. But the reality is, is that the law actually brings life to us when we keep it. Are you with me? Now, many people misunderstand this, and I'm going to explain this, and I don't want you to misunderstand it. In Revelation 22, verse 14, it says, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and enter into the gates of the city. Right? 
Somebody's going to misunderstand this, but I just hope you don't. What is the condition of eternal life? Somebody said it, and they said it correctly. It's obedience. What is the condition for salvation? Okay, so let me just back up. In order to have eternal life, what must you do? You must obey who? God. Because to not obey God creates sin, which brings what? Death. So the angels of God have eternal life because they obey God. Now somebody would say, well, well, that's legalism. But no, no, no. I didn't say salvation. I said eternal life. The purpose of salvation is to give us what? Eternal life. And so salvation comes when those who had eternal life because of obedience to God disobeyed and fell into sin, and now they need to, need to be redeemed and then restored to eternal life. And the purpose of salvation is to bring us back in harmony to the obedience of God's commands to have eternal life. Does that make sense? That is not legalism. That's biblical truth. Now look at here at Romans chapter 1 real quickly. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Romans 1 through verse 5. Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for what? Obedience. For obedience to the faith among the nations for His name. Now before you say, well, you're just coming in here preaching obedience, obedience, law, law. I'm not doing that the whole time. I'm just setting a foundation here. But don't misunderstand this, that the condition for eternal life is obedience. But because we have disobeyed, God is giving us grace to bring us back into a restoring relationship with Him. But that restoring relationship with Him brings us back into obedience to Him. Does that make sense everybody? Yes or no? Salvation is free. We cannot do anything to earn it. Okay? But the grace of God produces obedience. So sin brings destruction, not God's law, because God's law is good. Of course, Paul says that. So God is love, therefore His law is love. Its intent is to protect and not what? Not to destroy. However, when someone breaks the law, Destruction is the result because love is replaced by what? By selfishness. If loving God is the first and greatest commandment and sin is lawlessness, then our failing to love God with our whole heart must be the greatest what? Sin of all. And so really, breaking the commandments, breaking God's law, is simply loving ourselves more than Him. Loving our own desires more than Him. That's all it is. So, what is the function of the law? It was to bring us to Christ. Romans 7, 7, I would have not known sin except uh, through the law, for the law is the knowledge of sin. So, let me keep going here, because I want to get into another piece before our time runs out. E.J. Wagner, watch this. This is, very, this is very powerful. The eyes of God are everywhere, so that there is no possibility he can escape arrest. As soon as a person has sinned, he is seized by the law and is at once under condemnation of death. That doesn't make the law bad. It just means the law is doing his job, right? That's what his job is. Now he is shut up on every side of the law. There is not one of those commandments which is not against him, 
because there is not a man on earth who has not broken every one of them. The Bible says if you've broken one, you've broken how many? You've broken all of them. The Spirit of God causes the prison walls to close in upon him. His cell becomes narrower and narrower. You've seen on the movies where you know, they, they fall into this thing and then the wall begins to like close in and you know, they're trying to escape and whatever. And that's exactly what happens to us spiritually. He feels oppressed. And then he makes desperate struggles to escape. Now, when we're ex- how many of you have experienced this before in your life? Huh? You sin and then you feel like the walls are caving in and there's no rest, there's no peace, there's no escape. You know what I'm talking about? Have you experienced this before? Yeah? And it's a very troubling thing, isn't it? It's a very challenging thing. It's a very disturbing thing. And what is our natural thought when those walls are closing in? What's our natural thought? I'm not good enough. And God is what? God is angry and and He's just bringing the wrath down on me, right? When the reality is, when we feel that miserable conviction, what is God actually doing? He's actually trying to reach us. And He's trying because the natural, carnal human heart will always go after the first available thing other than God, won't it? If I find any way to escape that, that conviction, I usually take it other than yielding to God. Isn't it true? The natural human heart does that. And so what God does, and sometimes it takes a process of days or weeks or even years for some of us, what God does is He one by one takes away those methods of escape. And He says, you can't go there anymore. That's not going to do you any good. And He takes them away and that wall closes in until we reach the place where we have one place to turn and that's Him. And God doesn't do that because He doesn't love us. He does it because He does love us. Amen? Because He alone can save us. He starts out one way, but there the first commandment rises up against Him and will not let Him go free. He turns in another direction, but He has taken the name of God in vain. And the third commandment refuses to let Him have liberty in that direction. So with all the commandments, they utterly refuse to grant Him liberty because He has violated every one of them. He is completely shut in on every side. Now remember, is this a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. And think of your own experiences when you've gone through this thing and you cannot escape the truth. There is, however, just one avenue of escape, and that is through who? That is through Christ. Christ is the door, and the entrance through that door gives what? Freedom. I remember reading, I've been reading in my spare time, which isn't much, but when I'm, you know, waiting in line or something, I've been reading the autobiography of Joseph Bates. Anybody ever read that book before? Fascinating book. And uh, he tells about how he was was a, a sea captain. And in those days, before, I think it was the War of 1812, the British would capture our merchant ships, American merchant ships, and force the entire crew to come on board and they would basically draft them into the English Navy. They were conscripting them. And so you had American citizens that were forced to 
go with the British Navy. And he wrote about how they were always trying to escape. And they, they drilled this hole on one side of the ship, and, and um, at nighttime, some of them were trying to jump out of that hole and into the water and swim to shore, and how it was just under the soldier. And, and Joseph Bates had been a part of this, and he was the next person in line to go. But there were these two guys who had gotten drunk and who said, we want to go, and if you don't let us go now, we're going to start yelling and they're going to find you. And so they let these two guys go, and sure enough, the guy plops into the water and he starts to drown, and he starts screaming, and they capture him, and they find the hole, and they fill it up. And then they, and then they, and then they, uh, and then they cut a hole on the other side of the ship, and, and he was just describing all these ways in which he wanted to obtain he called it his liberty. He said, I will do anything to get my liberty. And that's the way that I thought about it for our own selves. When we are enslaved to sin, it ought to be our greatest desire to obtain what? Liberty. And the only way to liberty is through who? It's through Christ. Only Christ can do it. Notice this. From the signs of E.J. Wagner, he says, Stunned by his awakened conscience, the guilty one seeks peace and rest, but the law relentlessly charges him with his sin. All that it will do is deepen conviction and thus add to the load that weighs down the sinner. Finally, when he loses confidence in himself and cries out, O wretched man that I am, he is forced to cast himself at the feet of Jesus, saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I can tell you, friends, Times in my life when this has happened to me, even as a pastor. I'm always trying to go my own way, do my own thing, make my own plans. And it always leads me to a place where I'm on my knees saying, Lord, save me, I'm a sinner. And there's been times in my life, even as a pastor, when I've had to say, Lord, all I can do is thump my chest and, and say, save me. That's all I can say. I can't even say anything else. This is the only avenue of escape, and it is the only one that never fails. The law literally drives the sinner to Christ by shutting up every other way of freedom from guilt. I want you to think about Peter for just a minute. And I want to put this in context of Seventh-day Adventists. Did Peter, before the cross, love Jesus, yes or no? Did he? He loved Jesus. He loved the person. He had a human affection for Jesus. He knew that there was something special about Jesus, didn't he? And he loved to be around him. He loved to be in the meetings where he taught. He loved to be close to him, loved to be by his side. He loved Jesus. But his heart was not converted. He wanted to, he, he, he wanted to be close to Christ, but, but he had not yet been broken. And he was not broken until Christ looked him in the eye after he cursed and said, I don't know the man. And Christ gave him a look that he likely never forgot. And he went out upon the mount, and he fell upon this rock. I believe it was the same rock that Christ was praying on. And he was broken, the Bible says, and Spirit of Prophecy says. 
And this is my fear today. That in the Adventist church, there's a lot of people that love Jesus. There's a lot of people that have an affection to Jesus. They love to be with the people of God. They love the fellowship and you know, they like going to church and hearing the messages and this kind of a thing. But our hearts haven't really experienced the deeper conversion that leads us to the faith of Jesus. Are you with me? And I'm, and I'm not excluding myself from that. I'm saying, Lord, help me a sinner. We see best and we understand best what we need the most. And I need it more than anyone else. And more and more, you know, when Paul says, if a man thinks he's something, let him realize that he's nothing, right? And more and more I'm realizing that I thought I knew something, but I don't know anything. I don't know anything. And that's a, it's a scary thing to think that Peter, who was one of the twelve apostles, had an affection for Jesus because that affection for Jesus can even be blinding, can it? It can be blinding to the fact that we're truly unconverted. Now, I'm not trying to scare us and make us feel... But what I'm saying is, friends, we need an experience with Jesus like we've never had. We need to know that we know Him. Are you with me? We need to know that, that, that our hearts are surrendered to Him. And the only two people in the world and in the universe that can know if you really know Him is yourself and God. There is no way that I myself can know your condition. Even the angels of God, I mean, they can, they can write down everything, but they truly don't know what's in your heart. I mean, they know it probably more than, than I know it, or you know it about each other. But only God really knows, and only you really know what's in your heart. And you know. I mean, people say, well, I'm not sure if I... I mean, we know if our hearts are right with God or not. And if they're not, all we have to do is ask Him to know, and He's going to reveal it to us. I wrestled with that a little bit because in the parable of the sheep, the goats, the goats thought they knew him too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and that makes a point that we thought we know. And, and, and the reality is, <laughs> we've got to be searching the Word of God. We've got to be searching our own hearts. We've got to understand if we know Him and by the fruits there. So what hope is there for me? Can the law now justify me? How can I obtain the righteousness of God? Well, many times when we've sinned, we say these types of things. God will never happen again. How many of you have said that before? I mean, the first time we do that thing, we're like, whoa, how did I ever do that? You know what I find about myself? There may be something that I've never done in my life. And I'll look at somebody else and I'll see them doing this thing. I remember, I'll just give you an example. And I mean, it's, I'm ashamed to say it, but there was a guy that he was a pastor and he worked under me. And when he ate, it was like, it was like sad. Like, it was like, he was just like, how do I describe it? I don't even know how to describe it. It was like, he would eat very ungracefully. And he would just be like, and I said, man, this guy's a pastor and look at, look at how he's doing this. Like, 
in front of the members, and the members are looking at him like, like, what are you doing? And I remember I just honed in on that, and I, I didn't say much to him. I actually did say something to him about it. But then, over the course of time, for, for, I don't know how it even happened, but I found myself doing the same thing. And then it, it, then it hit me. And this has happened to me several times that things that I point out in others and criticize, I soon find myself doing. You ever found that to be true about yourself? Maybe you've never done that thing before in your life, but then someone else is doing it, and then you find yourself doing it, and it's like, how did this happen? But the first time you do something new that you know is wrong, you say, whew, I can't believe that happened. God, that'll never happen again. But then what happens? It might happen again. And each time it happens again, it gets less and less offensive to me and more and more acceptable, doesn't it? Until it becomes regular routine, it becomes a part of my character. And then God has to do a very big work in my heart to undo that thing, doesn't it? How about this one? I'll be good from now on. You ever said that before? Who does that sound like? Kids, and it sounds like the children of Israel. All that the Lord has said we will do and be what? Obedient. How about this one? I'll do something better to make up for it. I'm ashamed to say that there's been times when I've said in my own heart, never said it out loud until now, I'll put in a little more offering to... I remember I have a relative who's not a Christian, and this relative is very close to me. I won't say who, because I don't want them to ever hear it, but... But they make a very large sum of money, like have a very successful business. And they don't go to church, but occasionally they've gone to church with me. And they'll put a $20 bill in the offering plate. And, and they would look over at me and say, I put $20 in. That's, that's pretty good of me, isn't it? That's self-sacrificing, isn't it? And I'm thinking in my mind, that's like point zero 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 like 20 zeros per 1% of, and I'm thinking like tithe, you know. But this is the perception we have, like either I'm good or I can do something good to make up for it. How many of you have thought that before? Maybe not conscientiously, but subconsciously. We do something wrong and we think, well, you know what, I'm just going to like help this person a little bit extra because I did this wrong thing, so I want to like... But the reality is, we're all guilty before who? The Lord will not hold him what? If we stumble in one point, we've done it, broken them all. And by, notice this, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So if you've broken one point in the commandments, there's no amount of doing the other points in the commandments that will make up for the points you, you missed. Does that make sense? You cannot, no amount of of present or future obedience can remove the guilt of a past sin. You with me? And so no matter, no matter how much we do, I, even if I told, even if the only sin in my life, and I lived to be 120 years old, if I had one sin in my life and it was one little white lie, not even a big one, just a little one, 
and, and the rest of my life was painted with righteousness and self-sacrifice, I would still be what? Condemned. Because no amount of right doing can make up for what? Wrongdoing. Yes. All right, we cannot escape our guilt of breaking the commandments even by deciding to turn around and obey the Ten Commandments in the future. Even if we do it by grace, it doesn't cancel out the sin that's already been committed. Once we break it, the law even once, we can never have one drop, even one drop of righteousness. We are guilty as lawbreakers subject to death. And that's not just because God is a tyrant and God is overbearing, but it's very simply because um, it's the sin. The sin brings the death, you understand. And, and the law brings the death penalty, a declaration of righteousness. So trying to do that will only increase our guilt and condemnation. Romans 3.19, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Now let me make this point clear. If we... sin, and then we try to make up for it with our own righteousness, what essentially are we doing? We're sinning more and we're calling God a what? A liar. So here's the reality of the, uh, of the bottom line, is that when sin enters our life and we, and we choose to do it, we have one of two choices. We either call ourselves a liar or we call God a liar. When we try to hide it, when we try to make up for it, when we try to, you know, whatever, we're calling God a liar. And the only way to call ourselves a liar, so if we call God a liar, we're calling ourselves what? Righteous. If we call God righteous, we have to naturally declare ourselves what? liar and a sinner, right? And so the only way to recognize and declare God as righteous is for us to do what? <laughs> is to confess it. Is to say, I'm the sinner. God, save me. I'm the one in need. Because if we start defending ourselves or blaming others, what we're saying is, I don't need God. I don't, I don't need that forgiveness because I really didn't do anything wrong. So believe it or not, this is actually what? A relief. It's a relief when we actually come to the reality and the acknowledgement of our need, isn't it? Isn't that a relief? Because we don't have to keep pretending. We don't have to keep uh, uh, trying harder. We don't have to keep trying to cover it up. We can just bring it to its end. And so um, the law's function is to do what? Convict us, not what? Forgive us. While the law is completely righteous, notice this, it cannot transfer any what? Righteousness to us. But many Seventh-day Adventists are attempting to obtain their righteousness by what? By keeping the commandments. And the reality is that because you have sinned, you cannot obtain any righteousness through the law. Make sense? The law can only declare the righteousness of God. It cannot give any to you. 
All it does is declare your unrighteousness and declare His righteousness. It makes you a liar and Him telling the truth. So, what do I do? Well, Galatians 2.21 says, If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in what? In vain. E.J. Wagner, a doer of the law is one who has always done it. See? You know, you know when, when, when I think it's James that says, Be doers of the law, not hearers only. Right? But a doer of the law is one who has always done it. If a man has failed in only one particular, he cannot be called a doer of the law for the simple reason that he hasn't done it all. Therefore, on this account, he can never be justified by the law. So what do I do? How many of us are guilty of that, right? Trying to get righteousness from the law, we do it through that, which I mentioned. You know, there's all these billboards going up by these atheistic groups, and they're all over the country, these, these freedom thinkers and atheistic groups. Look at this. Being a good person doesn't require God. Don't believe in God, you're not alone. Look at this one. Millions are good without God, right? Why believe in a God? Just be good for goodness sake. These are advertisements that are all over the country, and humanity is attempting to do this. Um, I'm going to slip past this because I want to end with this. I cannot trust myself to do good in what? Any circumstance. So always people come to me with spiritual discouragement, and they say, I just feel like I'm not good enough. And you know what I say to them? I'm really glad that you acknowledge that. Because you're not. So the fact that you're feeling that way is not a sign that God has abandoned you. It's a sign that God is working on you and working in you. Because He's drawing. the closer we come to Christ, the less we're going to uh, feel righteous, right? Humanity is not righteous because of sin, but God's law is. So, the, I mean, I... When we sin, it even more thoroughly and clearly declares the righteousness of God, doesn't it? What's that? Oh, okay. However, God's law cannot transfer one drop of righteousness. I mentioned that. So how can I obtain the righteousness of the law? We would need to find another place where we can obtain Because look, if we're unrighteous... And we can't get righteousness by keeping the law. We can't get righteousness by producing it ourselves. We've got to have it, don't we? If we're going to stand true before God, we've got to have the righteousness. So there's got to be another location of which I can get it. Yes? And we'd have to find somebody who'd never sinned but kept the law perfectly who would allow us to have His righteousness as our own. And that's where we find Romans chapter 3. A beautiful passage. I'm going to just read it quickly here. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 through 26. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. So God's saying, look, I'm revealing another form of righteousness that you can have that's not from the law. Even the righteousness of God through faith in who? Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance or patience He had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the reality is this. We are poor, helpless, wretched sinners. Amen? Amen. And there's only one place to find the righteousness of God that we must have to stand in His presence once again. And that is putting our faith and trust in what Jesus has already done for us and not one ounce or one inch of that of ourselves. Now we got one minute. I'm going to read this statement. Here is a man born in sin or a woman. Women are probably closer to holiness than men, but his inheritance is the worst imaginable. I think about my own life when I think of that, my family. His environment is at the lowest depths known to the wicked. In some way, the love of God shining from the cross of Calvary reaches his heart. He yields, repents, confesses, and by faith claims Christ as his Savior. The instant, the what? The instant. That that is done, he is accepted as a child of God. That's a one-time thing, right? Is it? If I sin again tomorrow, what happens? Can I do the same thing again? What does it say? What's that word, that I word? The what? The instant that is done, he is accepted as a child of God. His sins are all forgiven. His guilt is canceled. He is counted righteous and stands approved, justified before the divine law. This amazing, miraculous change may take place in one short hour. And when he says hour, that's an 1800s phrase for second, moment, flash. This is righteousness by faith. That's what it is. And my friends... The scary thing is that it is so simple and so clear that as humans, we've taken this thing and overcomplicated it. We've overcomplicated it. And we've made it something that it's not. And because of that, many people have become discouraged and lost their faith, have been frustrated. Because we've oversimplified something that God has intended to be so simple and so easy. And if we will put our faith and trust in Him alone, this experience can be ours. What do you say? How many believe that to be true? Amen? And how many of you want to have that experience? All right, we'll pick up that tomorrow. How many of you want to have that experience of righteousness by faith? Now tomorrow I've got about just half a dozen more slides or so. And, uh, and then we're going to get into the book of Daniel. And we're going to see how through the life of Daniel this is. And then on the next two days we're going to go into the book of Revelation. And we're going to see these principles brought out there. So I wanted to lay a foundation today and help us understand. And I think that that paragraph I just read is the perfect sum. And I don't think our people are understanding that. But the, the more we put these texts in our hearts, the more we put them in our minds, they're going to become a reality and experience for us. Amen? And God wants us to have not just faith in Jesus, but He wants it to grow to what? The faith of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray together, then we'll wrap up. Father, we thank You so much for this opportunity, and we just pray that Your Spirit would be with us, 
that you would be drawn close to us, Lord, and that we would put our simple faith and our simple trust, Lord, not that we, we don't cheapen your grace, but Lord, you've made the gospel simple to us. And no matter where we've sinned, how we've sinned, how much we've sinned, if we're willing but to return to you, your grace is extended to us. Your invitation is given to us to come and partake of your righteousness. And Lord, we cannot get it from our own deeds or the deeds of the law, but we can receive it freely from you. And Lord, in that, we can find rest, we can find peace, we can have assurance in that what Jesus has done for us is enough. We don't need to add anything to it. So help us, Lord, believe this by faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.